Well, now that Craig uh, read that scripture, I want you to know we're going to be in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, actually for the, the study part of our, our uh, sermon today. But uh, we'll also be looking at those two verses, so I appreciate uh, you reading the scripture this morning. And before I get started today, I just want you to know that uh, your church chairman really has rhythm. I want you to know that. I stood up here by him this morning, and uh, George can really, I mean, he can clap his hands to that music. I want you to know that, okay? <laughs> In fact, he's got so much rhythm, I think I may be able to actually do Bible study with this guy, okay? But uh, it's amazing what you observe when you're on the front row of a church. Years ago, when I was a young pastor in Kansas City, Missouri, we started a little college and career class. And when we were doing that class, I ran across an article which has stuck with me all of these years. It's a little bit lengthy, but I want to read this to you because it's a poignant parable of what can happen to any church. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only a boat, but a few of the devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea, and with no thought for themselves, they went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those were saved, and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with this this station. They wanted to become a part of what they were doing. And the little life-saving station grew. Maybe you've heard this parable. But they were unhappy because the building was so crude and it was poorly equipped, so they replaced the emergency cots with beds and with much better furniture. In the large building, and now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they, they decorated it, and they beautifully furnished it. And fewer members were now interested in going out to sea in order to save the lost. And so they hired some lifeboat crews to do that for them. About this time, a large ship wrecked off the coast. People were sent out. And there were dirty and sick that were brought in, black-skinned and yellow-skinned, and a beautiful new club was in, the beautiful new club was in chaos. In fact, the people who came in were so dirty, they sent them out to take showers before they let them into the building. Well, at the next meeting, there was a split in the membership, and most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and in hindrance to normal social life. And so they were sent down the coast, and if they wanted to start their own building, they could, and that station began to grow, and and then history repeated itself. And the new station experienced the same changes that occurred in the old, and it evolved into a club, and, and history became the same. And the end of the story is that shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people end up drowning. Let that be a lesson to us. Let that be a lesson to any church because it can happen to any church tragically, this cycle that we're describing this morning. Now, in his book entitled Growing a Healthy Church, 
Dan Spader quotes a gentleman by the name of George Orgon, and it's coming up on the screen for you right now. And he said that the typical church is an activity trap. And having lost sight of the higher purposes for which it was originated, it now attempts to make up for those that loss by an increased range of activities. And many years ago, Paul Little made this statement, the problem of the church today is not that the gospel's lost its power, but the church has lost its audience. Seventy percent of the people in our community are not in this building this morning. Seventy to eighty percent, maybe ninety percent of the people in the hill towns are not in churches this morning. They're down at the local park today commemorating our bicentennial or there's someplace else, else, but they're not here worshiping with us. The gospel is still very powerful, but we've lost our audience. We're not connecting. We're not reaching out. Did you know that there's one thing that we will be doing here on earth that we will not be doing in heaven? And Jesus left us for this reason. We will be worshiping God in heaven. They will have choirs in heaven, just like our choir that's down at the park today. There will be praise teams in heaven, and they will be singing. We'll be doing that in heaven. We'll be praying in heaven. Now, you think about that for a moment. You think, we'll be praying in heaven? Yes, we'll be praying in heaven. If praying is listening to God, and if praying is talking to God, then we'll be praying in heaven. And you know something else we'll be doing in heaven? We'll be connecting with each other. We'll be connecting. We'll be in community. We'll be fellowshipping together in heaven. But there's one thing that we, will, we were called on to do here on earth that we will not be doing in heaven, and that is reaching out to people who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. That's called evangelism and discipleship. And that's why Jesus Christ left us on this planet. That's the one thing that we're engaged in here that we will not be doing in heaven. And he's left us here for that purpose. And that's what that first verse of Scripture, which Greg read for us this morning, was talking about. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You, you, every one of us here this morning. We're called to be witnesses for our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on in that verse of Scripture. You listen to the passage as it was read. We are to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So now today I'm beginning what is really a two-part series. We're going to be talking about evangelism and then discipleship next week. Jesus Christ has left us on this planet for the purpose of evangelism, being his witnesses, and discipleship, which is all about seeing people come to Christ and seeing people become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our foundational or fundamental purpose as a body of believers. Now, when I think about evangelism and discipleship, it's like the heads and the tails on a coin. 
They belong with each other. They belong to each other. And any effective, healthy church is involved in evangelism and discipleship. And if we're not doing that, then it's easy to, de- to develop certain spiritual diseases. And I want to talk about some of those. They're coming up on the screen for you, and you can kind of read along. If we're not reaching out, if we're not involved in evangelism as a witness and discipleship so others are becoming more like Christ, then it's easy to develop what one man called koinonitis. Now, koinonitis is just a fancy way of saying too much fellowship. Koinonia, we all are familiar with that word, is the word for fellowship. And if that's all we're doing, you don't develop arthritis, but you develop koinonitis. Or you may become spiritually obese, edification overdose. You know, it's, it's great to study the Bible. And I hope you get in a small group this fall. We need to be in small groups. We need to be studying the Word of God. But if that's all that we're doing, then it's easy to develop spiritual obesity. We become, can I just say it? Fat, spiritually. We do. If that's all we're in is just Bible studies, huddling together with other other believers. Or spiritual blindness. We become a little bit like that that lighthouse that I was describing this morning. We, We lose sight of our purpose, what we're really here for. And we lose our way as believers. Or we develop spiritual heart disease. Now, evangelism takes place in several different locations. God wants us to be evangelists or reaching out as witnesses across the street, around the world, and even regionally. Now, we've got the Von Teppos here with us this morning, and they've been reaching out regionally. He was an officer uh, in New York City for several years, and they've been involved in a prison ministry down near, I think it's Kingston, New York. Well, that's a regional ministry. And then evangelism takes place in several different ways. We can have evangelistic events, and we've got a slide coming up on the screen now that kind of uh, pictures that for you. We can have evangelistic events, things like special speakers that come in, and, and we can have crusades and concerts and camps. Or we can be involved in strategic ministries like what the Von Temples have done, uh, being involved in prison ministry. Uh, we can be involved in things like FCA and the International Student Ministry or Pioneer Clubs. But the foundation of all evangelism, reaching out to be witnesses, is relational. Fundamentally, witnessing, reaching out evangelistically, it's interpersonal, it's relational, and that's not a program. That's relationship. And you can't program that. That's spontaneous. That's the kind of thing that happens in your neighborhood or at work, with your friends, with your work associates, with with extended family members. One of the things that's been so encouraging to me in in our brief time here is I've heard of one family member uh, that, that belongs, I believe, to Karen Cornell, her family. Somebody just recently accepted Christ. And then just the other day, somebody else was sharing with me, somebody, a friend of theirs who had come to trust Christ. That's exciting. That's what we want to see happen. And that's not a program. Nobody can see that. 
when you're witnessing on Monday or Friday or whatever the day of the week it is, reaching out to share Christ with a friend. And so that's what we want to talk about this morning as we look at Colossians 4. And I hope you have your Bible open there because there are five essentials to being an effective witness if you want to be used by the Lord in the life of a family member, a work associate, or a friend this morning. And we all have some sphere of influence that we're a part of. And the first essential to being an effective witness is prayer. Look at Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Now, if you're in a small group, and I hope you're going to get in one, you're going to have an opportunity to dive into this passage tonight or sometime this week. And in your notes this morning, if you pick them up, we gave you the background to, the, to this letter to the people in Colossae. Why did Paul write this book? When did he write it? And we're not going to take time to go over that, but you'll look at it and you'll be able to talk about it in your small group. You can go deeper into the Word of God. But what I want you to see here today is that the last part of this book was very practical. And here at the end of the book, Paul gives us some essentials for being effective witnesses. And the first essential ingredient we find here in the second verse of chapter 4 is this matter of prayer. He says, he says very clearly, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. I'm reading from the English Standard Version with thanksgiving. And at the same time, look at verse 3. Pray for us, he says. Pray for us. For the word, to, for, for an open door for us that I may declare the mystery of Christ. Notice this, this issue of prayer. If we're not praying, then nothing is getting done. If I'm depending on myself and the eloquence of my own words my own human ingenuity, when I reach out to that friend, then I can't expect spiritual results because spiritual results only come when the Holy Spirit is working in and through my life and in the life of somebody else. And so I think that's why Paul gives us this, this principle here, this essential ingredient to, to witnessing. And this, this command that he gives us to pray is in the present tense. That means stick to it and don't ever stop praying. Prayer should be continuous. And when we pray, we're to be spiritually alive, alert, and awake. This second Greek word here in this verse of Scripture is actually a word taken from the Gospels, which described Jesus in his relationship with the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember that? When he said, can't you guys stay awake for just one minute and pray with me? He wanted them to agonize with him in prayer. That's this word. To stay awake, to stay alert in your prayer life. He's calling us to prayer. Stick to it, he says. And then notice this little theme of thanksgiving in this verse of Scripture. With thanksgiving being watchful in it with thanksgiving 
Have you ever noticed how so many times our prayers are, give me, God, give me this. God, give me that. God, I've got to have this. Instead of gratitude. Our prayer life is so much, so much of the time, give me rather than gratitude. We're like the little boy who at night, he got up the next morning, his parents asked him, well, did you pray? Did you say your good night prayers last night? He said, no, I didn't say my good night prayers because I didn't want anything. That's our prayer life. Our prayer life should be marked with thanksgiving, gratitude. There's always something we can be grateful for, no matter how difficult things get in your life. And so we have this call to prayer this morning. Behind every work of God, you will always find some kneeling form, D.L. Moody said. Time spent in prayer will yield more than, than that given to work. Prayer alone gives work its, pardon me, gives spiritual work its worth and its success. And then in this state by E.M. Bounds, and some of you I'm sure have read it before. E.M. Bounds said many years ago, talking to men for God is a great thing. But talking to God for men is greater still. Before you go out there and witness, say a prayer. He will never talk well and with real success to men for God who has not learned well how to talk to God for men. So notice what Paul says there. Pray that there will be an open door for us. Because if God doesn't open the door, then our words mean nothing. Prayer is the first step in effectively witnessing for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the first essential in evangelism. So let me do something right now. I'm going to invite you to something that perhaps you haven't been to for a long time. I'm going to invite you to the Wednesday night prayer meeting this week. That's my personal invitation to you, to show up here this Wednesday night and pray with us. Pray with us. Pray with us. Pray with us. Will you come join us and pray with us for this community? Did you hear the words of the Apostle Paul this morning? It's just so easy to depend on the lifeboat, isn't it? And our good-looking oars and our nice building and our wonderful property. And we become so dependent on our own human ingenuity and strength that we no longer depend on God to do a work. It begins with prayer. And if God is going to revitalize this body of believers, and if there are going to be churches in America today that are used by God to reach our communities for the Lord Jesus Christ, It will begin with prayer because if God isn't in it and if God isn't doing it, it isn't going to get done. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul this morning. 
And then notice the second ingredient to effective prayer. Persecution. Now that's an odd thought, but look at verse 3. He goes on. And he says, pray for us that there will be an open door for the word. Do you see that in verse 3? To declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Underline that last phrase. The apostle Paul was not afraid to identify himself with the Lord Jesus Christ. An identification many times will result in persecution. I'm looking out here at Andrew this morning, that stocky football player, and he's got a lot of courage. But I'm telling you, if you're a student here today and you're willing to identify yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ in the school that you attend, or if you're willing to step out there and say it or be it, Whatever God's calling you to do, identification may very well lead to persecution in your life. Now, it may not be like the Apostle Paul. And again, if you're in a small group Bible study this week, you're going to have an opportunity to go deeper with this passage than what we're doing right now this morning in in this sermon time. And we've given you a lot of cross-references in your notes on page 3 if you're following along. And I'm going to encourage you tonight when you're in your Bible study to look some of those verses up and you'll see that the Apostle Paul paid a price for identifying with Christ. There's a long list of stuff that happened to him. And none of that stuff may ever happen to you, but you may be persecuted. You may be belittled. You may be made fun of if you're willing to take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ and identify yourself with him as a witness. In fact, this Greek word witness that we're using this morning that was read by Craig in in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 literally means martyr. It's a word of persecution. That's this Greek word. And so effective witnesses are willing to be persecuted for their faith. I'm reminded of a story which I read several years ago I clipped it and saved it. It's a true story of Michelle Sox, 25 years of age. She was five months pregnant, and she was forced to get off the bus that she was riding on and take a 20-minute walk home in heavy, freezing rain along the shoulder of a highway. And why was she kicked off the bus? You know, want to know? She was witnessing to a person next to her sharing the Lord Jesus Christ. And the bus driver, quote, said, I'm going to have to ask you to stop talking about that because you could offend the people around you. And they can't get away out of earshot, so get off the bus. It's a true story happening in our country. And there are people that get persecuted, maybe not like third world countries, but identification can result in persecution. And then there's a third ingredient I want you to see in this passage of Scripture, and it's proclamation. Notice Paul asked these believers to pray for an open door for the Word 
that we would declare and or proclaim some of your Bibles, if you have the New International Version this morning, I think it translates this word proclaim, that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Pray that I may make it clear. Look at the beginning of verse 4. That's proclamation, explanation. There comes a time that it's not enough to just live it. You've got to say it. Now, there's been a lot of emphasis in the past couple of decades in our country with the friendship evangelism movement, and we're very thankful for people like uh, Joe Stoll and and, uh, uh, Joseph Aldridge and uh, Peterson who've written many books on friendship or relationship evangelism, and that's great. But the problem is a lot of relational evangelism has become all about relationship or friendships, and there's not enough evangelism. There comes a time where it's not just, it's not good enough to just live it, but you've got to say it. You've got to talk about it. You've got to take a deep breath and gulp and and, and identify yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm reminded of a story of a, a gentleman who went to a Billy Graham crusade years ago, and he actually went forward, and he gave his life to the Lord at this Billy Graham crusade, and he came back, and he was sharing his experience with one of his elders in his church. And the elder said, yeah, I heard that you went forward the other night. I'm excited that you're, 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 a, you're a believer. And then this gentleman said, I've been worshiping here for over 20 years. He said, how many years have you known Christ? And this elder said, well, I think I've known him for over 23 years. And he said, well, well, I've admired you for years, and I've watched your life, and I wanted to emulate you, but I decided that, that if, if you could be that good, I had no idea you were, you were a Christian. Why didn't you share Christ with me? An indictment against this elder. And a lot of times, how guilty, I'm just going to, I'm not going to speak for you this morning. I'll speak for me, my, myself. I'm a pastor. And a lot of people know I'm a pastor. And I go down here to the local deli, and man, we had great pizza the other night. They may know I'm a pastor, but have I spoken about Christ? It's a great pr- question to ask ourselves. When was the last time I actually spoke to somebody the local deli that I rub shoulders with about the Lord Jesus Christ in a personal way, not just from the pulpit or on Sunday morning. So proclamation. And a lot of times we don't step out there and say it, I think, because we're afraid to say it or we don't know how to say it. And so one of the questions I, I would ask you this morning, and it's a, it's a very practical question, is have you ever taken the time to master some tool, some method, some means of explaining Christ to somebody so that you can explain it, look at verse 4 again, clearly so they understand it and they can act on what you share with them. And there are a lot of great tools like the, 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 the Roman road or the the four spiritual laws, or, or uh, you can tell it by even tell. There's all kinds of great gospel presentations. Have you mastered one of those so that if you're, 
ever asked for the reason for the hope that's in you, the passage of Scripture that was read, you can actually give an answer that's clear. So they understand it, and they can act on the words that you share. One of the handouts that we've got out there for you this morning is a little handout on how to prepare a personal testimony. It's by the little prayer bulletin on the table out there. I'd encourage you to pick one of those up as you're, you're leaving today and just read through it and, and work through it so that you get to that place where you can share your story when you're, you're in front of somebody and they ask you a question. We can all invest that kind of time. Proclamation, sharing Christ. And then notice the fourth essential ingredient here today. He goes on in verse 5 and says, Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Wisely toward outsiders. What does that look like? Well, again, if you're in a small group tonight, you're going to have an opportunity to perhaps look up and cross-reference this with James chapter 3. You get the feeling that small groups are a good thing to be in? Have I promoted that enough this morning? (laughs) Yes. Get in a small group. Go deeper with this. Get in the living room of a home where you can talk about it. It's one thing to listen to a sermon. It's another thing to discuss it with other Christians and encourage each other on how you can better do what we're talking about today. What does it mean to live wisely with outsiders? Well, if you cross-reference it with James chapter 3, notice the attributes of wisdom, living wisely. Being pure, being peaceable, being gentle, being open to reason. You know what being open to reason means? It means not being stubborn. How many times does my wife look at me and say, you're so stubborn. If you're walking wisely, you're open to reason. You're willing to yield to the other person's opinion. Walking wisely toward outsiders. Being gentle. We're talking about the fruits of the Spirit now. Them seeing Christ in you full of mercy and good fruits. And 1 Peter 3.15, which Craig added, read for us, as the qualities of gentleness and respect. When we live that way, people are drawn to Christ. And then he says, making the most of every opportunity or the best use of your time. You know what that word is? That was a marketplace term in Paul's day. In other words, you go down to the local apple orchard and you're looking at all of that good stuff. And yes, I'm going to be 20 pounds heavier when I leave here than when I came because I love apple cider donuts, okay? But you go down to the local market, the local apple orchard, and you look at all of those juicy apples and you say, I got to have one of those. And so you seize the day, you, you buy a bag full. Or you go to the local supermarket and they got some stuff on sale and it won't be on sale tomorrow. So what do you do? You seize the day. You buy it now. You got to have it. That's this word. Make the most 
of every opportunity because it may not be there tomorrow. You may not have that opportunity to share that word again with somebody. Making the best use of the time because the days are short. So many times, I think, sadly, we're like the gentleman. We don't make the best use of every opportunity. We're like the, the man that the Christian comedian Ken Davis, have any of you heard Ken Davis? Tells the story of a guy that got on the bus and he went all, the bus was empty and he went all the way to the back end of this bus, nobody else on it. And he prayed to God, well, Lord, if, if you want me to share you with somebody today, then please give me a sign. And at the next bus stop, one other individual got on. Bus is empty. And the individual walked all the way to the back of the bus and sat down by him. And he turned to him and he said, do you know anything about Jesus? And at that point, the man bowed his head and he said, Lord, would you please give me another sign? He said, if you want me to say anything, please turn the bus driver into an armadillo. (laughs) We're guilty of praying for armadillos. We don't seize the day, that opportunity that's often in front of us. And that leads us to the fifth and final essential ingredient of being an effective witness. Verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That's the final thought this morning. Speech that's gracious, seasoned with salt, and then notice the phrase, so you may know how you ought to answer. And 1 Peter 3.15, which was read for us at the beginning of this study, said, so that you may be prepared to give a reason for the hope that lies within you if somebody asks. Let me just stop right there, and I'm going to come down closer to you because I want you to hear this question. When was the last time somebody asked you? You know, I'm not sure when the last time somebody asked me. But what does that say about us? Got to get out of the sunlight here. What does that say about us? Do they see Jesus in me? Am I walking wisely toward outsiders? You know, when was the last time somebody asked you? But then if they did ask you, were you prepared? Have you mastered a way of explaining it? And that word prepared and making defense is the word for apology. Now, that doesn't mean you've got to be Ravi Zacharias. It doesn't mean that you're R.C. Sproul. It doesn't mean that you're some flaming best Christian apologist on planet Earth. Be yourself. As my wife tells me, everybody else is taken. Be yourself. God wants you to be you. Don't try to be Ravi Zacharias because you're not. I can't even, I can't even think as fast as he talks. But we are to be prepared. We're to study the Word. We're to have credible reasons for our faith. We ought to be able to explain it to be an effective witness. 
And so here in Colossians, it talks about the how. We ought to be able to, to do it in a sweet and savory way, seasoned with salt. And 1 Peter 3 talks about the what, the content, being prepared. And that's the final and fifth essential ingredient to being effective witnesses or evangelism this morning. It was real simple in the first century A.D. You know what their system for, for spreading the word was? It wasn't a telegram. It wasn't text messaging. It was called teleperson. Would you just say that with me? You got my permission. Teleperson. Teleperson. That was their method. Real simple. It's not rocket science. It's called teleperson. Years ago, it was my privilege to go to Ireland with Leighton Ford. And I actually got to meet Ravi Zacharias. If you can believe that, he'd never remember my name. But I actually had breakfast with him. We'd sit around the breakfast table but, uh, before this Congress on Evangelism. We were in Galway, Ireland. And I met a gentleman by the name of Jim Whitley. He lived in Belfast, and he'd come down to the Republic to join us on that occasion for this Congress on Evangelism that we were having. And I'll never forget, Mr. Whitley, you remember him, honey. He came to visit us in Oklahoma City. He stayed with us in our home. And he wrote a poem that I've never forgotten, and I asked him for a copy, and it's called The People Next Door. I'm going to close with this today. What? Go to my neighbor? You've got to be joking. That woman's a menace, an absolute bore, and he's not much better. You need all of Job's patience if you had the neighbors I'm stuck with next door. And the people behind us, they're really the limit. Their taste is appalling. Their speech I deplore. I know they're lonely, and I think they've got troubles, but I, you, you can't get involved when you're living next door. And I do think of others, and I pray for, for the lonely, and I pray for the sick and the sad, and I pray for the poor, and I always attend the missionary prayer meeting, but I simply can't stand the people next door. And suppose, just suppose, that they did get converted and just wanted to join us in worship and more. Just think of the awkwardness and the problem and what they'd expect of us living next door. And when I reach heaven, there's bound to be someone who read the good news on some distant shore through the money I sent so they, they could have Bibles. And we are going to have a missionary conference here at the end of this month. Just fancy. They don't even own one. The people next door. But perhaps when the roll has been called over yonder and the harvest is gathered on heaven's bright shore, when the masters gathered the redeemed of all ages, perhaps you will hear him address you once more. Perhaps he will say, yes. Yes, they're here in their millions from cities, from jungles, from earth's farthest shore. The outcasts have come and also the heathen. But where are the people that you had living next door? Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, may it be so. We've all got neighbors. 
We've all got family members, some of who do not know you personally. And we all will go someplace tomorrow morning and we're going to rub shoulders with people that do not know you personally. Lord, help us to remember as we leave here today these five essentials for being an effective witness, five essentials of effective evangelism. And Lord, help us. Help us to be the church you want us to be. Lord, help me to be the pastor you want me to be. And more than that, help me to be the witness that you want me to be this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's sing our closing hymn. I think we're just going to sing two or three verses. They're listed in your bulletin. You can read which ones. Let's stand together and sing it as we close.